This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and on today's show, we are joined by Sean Meadows, partner at SI Partners Global. How are you today, Sean? Very well, enjoying the sunshine. I know, it's balmy out there. It's practically like May weather. Beautiful. I'm also joined by David Breer, our 11FS CEO and my co-host today. How are you today, David? Really good. Enjoying the sun as well. Like Literally, it was sort of slalom through uh, through the square now just to get through all of the people who are trying to absorb sort of uh, 15 seconds of vitamin D. It's kind of weird. Just feel odd seeing people lying on the grass in vest tops in February. It's a strange environment out there. Anyway, uh, let's get on with the show. So, Sean, it's your first appearance on InsureTech Insider. Um, could you give us a quick overview of what you do on a day-to-day basis and the company you work for? Of course, and thank you for inviting me here. It's a fantastic opportunity. I've known David for many years, so to be in the same room with him is very exciting. Um, I'm now a partner at SI Partners, uh, which is a global consultancy which does both growth and value creation for people in the creative to technology sector. And finally, we like to create value for them with a merger and acquisition business that then takes those business to market and sells them usually to one of the big consultancies, one of the big tech consultancies, or one of the marketing services businesses. So um, let's take a little bit of a look at your background. And I'm hoping to dig into some secrets here. You worked with, work with David for a long time. Well, um, well I'm not sure, uh, like, I'm not sure Sean would even know who I was when I was at Aviva <laughs> and he was at Aviva. Like, I remember you, were, I think you were about 400 levels above me when I was at Aviva back in, back in the day. I actually remember being super nervous coming in and doing a presentation to Sean. And actually, look, my overriding theme was you were just such a nice guy. Like, you were so senior in that setup, but you were just such a friendly, down-to-worth person that that stuck with me all the way through. And I know we've had these discussions a few times when we've sort of caught up for dinner recently. But uh, but yeah, that's that's my overriding impression is I didn't get how somebody so senior could be so nice, which I'm is s- weird. I'm still going to ask him what you got up to. I'm still going to ask for any skeletons in your closets. <laughs> what, mine or Sean's? Yeah, yours. <laughs> oh, there's definitely in mine. But. Um, who knows where there's skeletons in his closet? I wouldn't have known. He just did a great job. Um, so let, let's bring it back a little bit. So you were at Viva for, for 22 years. So um, what during that time, I mean, you and you had several different roles, I imagine, during that time. You know, what what were those roles? And, you know, how did the insurance industry change? Because that's quite a, quite a period there. So roles-wise, it was like working for probably 10 different businesses. I joined Norwich Union, which was a mutual lovely, friendly business back in a time I'm not going to tell you because it would be, have too many. I think we'd have a one and a nine at the beginning rather <laughs> than noughties. And then I left at a time it was a thriving PLC. You know, So over that period of time, it went from an incredibly paper-focused, um, very manual, very poor in terms of its management of its customers. In fact, I'm not even sure we used to talk about customers when I joined to a point where consumers were everything. And so um, that's probably the biggest change that I would have said over that period of time. 
Equally, the roles that I played um, over that period of time went right from running an operations function, which is where I started, running a big admin center, right the way through to eventually I was the chief executive out in Singapore and Hong Kong, which ran about 2,000 people over those two locations, which is a totally different business to that in the UK. Somewhere in the middle, I did some work out in India, helping build our presence in the um, India and Sri Lanka, and I also ran marketing for... Um, the general insurance business and also the digital um, proposition across the total um, element of the UK market, which would have been general insurance and life insurance and health insurance. So quite a lot of different roles. But for me, it was like doing 10 different jobs. You know, I think in these days you would go and do 10 jobs. You wouldn't stay with one company all of that time. But I had some lucky breaks. I was part of the team when we acquired RAC. So I was able to run the brand of RAC and run the marketing there. I was part of the team of implementing some technology solutions. So I did some IT implementations, which gives you the skills in that space. And then we ran some great marketing campaigns. And I was probably just on, just on the cusp, which is where I, I would have picked up David in, in my team. So I must admit, <laughs> I didn't, wouldn't know him personally, is when we had a digital team. And it, it was the start of, wow, we need to digitalize our proposition here. Um, but it would have been really early in that phase. And I, I look back when I think it was 2006 2007 so you're only really talking a decade on it's transformed itself since 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 that time and like you say it's it's amazing to go from managing policies to managing customers so you know the insurance industry over that period really did change dramatically didn't it yeah, I, I, oh gosh, we talked about personas at the end of it. Um, and when we started, I don't think we even knew what a persona was. You know, we used to have models of personas. We were in marketing to try and think of who of the consumers that we were trying to approach. You know, when I started, it was a paper folder and it maybe had a name on it. You would have no idea what you were doing and why you were doing it. So I think that was for the good. But I think the last 10 years have probably transformed that again, um, albeit probably slower for some of those big legacy companies because they've got all of the newer businesses nipping away at their their proposition. But, you know, I think it's improving dramatically, mm. but great fun. You know, still find it really interesting to watch what they're doing. And, and those developing markets, you know, like you say, with Singapore and India, you know, actually the impact that insurance is having globally is it's kind of changing how a lot of those countries are actually able to uh, sustain the growth in humans that they're kind of finding as well. Yeah, so if you take Singapore, when I first arrived, which was late 2007, early 2008, insurance was bought from an agent still. It was still the model of man knocking on the door. And to be, I'm not sexist, they were men knocking on doors. There was nothing else that happened. And we were the first business that introduced an online motor proposition there. And it was almost transformational at a time when you think in the UK, you'd already had the direct lines, you'd had all the other people who'd built those solutions. So it's quite strange in that, that space. Same in India, you know, they bypass landlines to mobile. So your, your products changed dramatically because you were able to uh, utilize a different form of getting to your customers. Mm. I, I always think it's, you know, the insurance in- industry in the UK uh, during that period, lived through reasonably significant disruptions through things like aggregators as well. You know, these are the things that actually a lot of other clients that we talk to now are, you know, everybody's facing into intermediation and disruption. And actually, the insurance industry had it hit way before the banking industry did. Oh, totally. You know, you, know, you think the impact of, again, when you went direct to market, and then suddenly you had an aggregator that was making a choice for you. It was a big strategic call in those days as to whether we would put a product on an aggregator or not. We decided not to. We felt our brand was brave enough and strong enough not to do that. Probably still think that's the right decision. You know, they've still Aviva and Direct Line, and those businesses have still managed to carve out a great product direct to consumer. 
But aggregators have done a great thing in terms of shaking the market up. They've shaken up the price, the way to go to market. They make people think about it. You know, so as ever, disruption in the market usually is a good thing. Mm. Um, certainly in the insurance market, I think it's done really, really some really powerful things for consumers. As somebody who, you know, has worked within the marketing sphere, within insurance, I'm just intrigued because one of the things I look at when I see uh, the aggregators is that it's their marketing that suddenly becomes all important. So everybody knows Go Compare or the Meerkats or, you know, whatever it might be. And actually Aviva's marketing, for example, gets lost a little. Were you there for that during that kind of shift in how you were how you were advertising yourselves and how people were perceiving you? Yeah, totally. So we I, I came in on the back of the famous Quote Me Happy campaigns, <laughs> which were phenomenal. They were the most hated campaign for about two years running, but they did what a campaign should do, which is get people to ring you or get people to click on your website. So from that perspective, they were perfect. Um, you then had the aggregators. So you were competing against the noise of, I think it was probably pre-Meerkat days. I don't think that fantastic campaign had started by then. But you were, you were, you were trying to build a different product. You were trying to build a product which said, come to me directly. Look, I can still get you a really good deal. Um, you don't need to go and shop around using the aggregators to do that. Um, yeah, so you, you, you were just positioning yourself in a different place. So you, you were having to invest a lot of money in brand. You know, because the aggregators, I think, to this day still spend something like £40 million just on TV and maybe some social media stuff, but they're still very predominant on TV to make sure that their, their, their share of voice is heard. I will say that's that's an interesting sort of stat for, you know, the challenger bank space, the insure tech space, because until somebody starts spending really above the line and get that sort of national awareness of, of what they're doing, they're probably not going to scale as effectively as they did because they, you know, uh, money supermarket particularly, seemingly over the space of about 18 months went from nothing to really generating most of the uh, the, the distribution of, of leads to major players, didn't it? Yeah, and I, I, I'd sit on a few sort of advisory support um, positions with some of the fintechs and surtechs in this space at this minute in time. And I, I always struggle with that conversation about if you want to go to consumers, you need a huge marketing budget because you've got to compete against people who are spending millions, you know, and putting one advert up on the tube or I don't know, on a poster site just isn't going to get you the breakthrough. It's sustained spend over a long period of time, mm. which allows you to get the breakthrough. Yeah. You know, I love the stuff Monzo have done. I love, can't say I love the Revolut stuff, but, you know, at least they're trying to do stuff which is getting them out there in terms of presence and, you know, um, getting their awareness up. But boy, to get to the size of, uh, you know, even the smallest of the, the banks, the TSBs or whatever, you know, we'll need an enormous spend yeah. in terms of above the line advertising, whatever that means these days, you know, to, to raise that awareness through. And do you think that, um, so, you you know, you obviously were saying you, you moved on from Aviva and, and one of the things that I think you still do now, but you've done quite a lot of, is that a sort of advisory role to other companies? Um, we sort of, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that in a minute, but off the back of the InsurTech question, do you find that, that a lot of people come up with a great idea, a great product, but have no concept of how they don't how hard it would be to get it out there because a lot of the people that we speak to on this show have you know fantastic products and ideas i know nothing about marketing so i have no concept of how you get enough consumers to make that product viable do you think that that's something that people aren't uh, startup founders aren't necessarily made aware enough of like kind of what you need to do to actually acquire those customers or? i think you get a range of of startups that that some have a great thought process of how they're going to market their product. Some have a great product. Um, I think most don't recognize the sheer challenge of getting their product base to a, 
where I consider it's scalable. So I was chatting to some people late, late last week about a new insure product. Great idea, trying to look at a subscription basis of how they do that. They're talking about a customer base of 50,000. You know, and, and a business to consumer model, 50,000 is not really going to scratch anything. You know, that it's the scaling that to the next level, which would be the only time I would suggest they can get anywhere near making money. But they have no idea how they're going to get from 50,000 to a million, say, for example. And I would say that absolutely is a key issue for lots of these businesses where sometimes the idea is a bit like, mm, really? You're really <laughs> going to make a, a, that, that thing in the marketplace? But normally it's even then it's like, so how are you going to sell it? What, why are people going to buy it? So I had the pleasure of going to South by Southwest last year and be go, going back out there. Yeah, we could talk about that for another 45 minutes. <laughs> um, and you go around the expo and it's full of VR technology. It's full of AR technology. Most of it looking for a solution. Mm. Mm. It's yeah. just, oh, a great bit of technology. Mm. And you're thinking, well, where are they going to use it? It's just, it's just someone's made up this concept. But there's no way that they're ever going to take that mass market or even, you know, minor market. It's just they've obviously got a bit of cash. Think, I know what we're going to do this with it. And you just think you feel really sorry for it because you know full well that in six months or nine months that I've run out of money and that will get nowhere. And they, they, to, your, to your question, they don't seem to start with what's the proposition and how am I going to take it to market? They start with, hey, great idea. I think there's there's very often, like you say, startups there, you know, is it a feature? If it's a feature, mm -hmm. it's probably not going to survive. Can they actually create a product about it? And if they can create a product, then it's a it's an interesting beachhead that they could do something with. But even then, is it a business? You know, and actually, is there a viable business model around it that actually makes it a sustainable thing for them to to even reinvest any profit that they might make? And you know, many never get beyond that feature part, uh, meaning that however good it can be, they never really get beyond that beachhead. Really, we we have seen some pivot, haven't we? You know, you talk about like Monzo, like Revolut, like Starling, uh, and actually even like uh, you know lemonade from an insurance perspective we've seen them enter the market and start to do more and more things off the back of the success that they've actually had at the beginning yeah so i was just gonna say with the point about a feature which kind of feeds back into the idea that we talk about a lot on the show of the value of startups partnering with with incumbents and the, some of the hubs and labs and accelerators and whatever else they're called these days um i wonder if there's something in that that it might be a feature but that's not the end of the world if you're spotted by Aviva's digital garage and they go oh interesting come over here and let us help you with that I mean well I think I think at least sort of two or three times a day I do the Mark Andreessen quote about you know distribution and innovation so you know if if startups can do innovation but can't do distribution and big incumbents have got you know distribution for sure in terms of the you know, everything that we're talking about here with a brand but don't necessarily get innovation right that's where and i know we we talked about this on fintech insider a couple of weeks ago with the the valentine special but those partnerships make this a completely different game don't they at that stage yeah i mean um to go back to to you know what you're up to at the, the moment sean i don't know if it gives a quick overview of kind of some of the some of the sort of things you're working on on, on the advisory side yeah okay so i chair uh, and sit on the board of a uh, car insurer which just plays through the aggregator so I still keep my nose in that space trying to understand still what's happening that which is great fun um, I chair an innovation company which a company called Market Gravity which sold to Deloitte Digital um, about 18 months ago which again is great fun service design uh, proposition design just ideation brilliant fun work with a business called Rocketer which is a, a really a tech business which is looking about how do you utilize Facebook as a media media channel, which is which is great fun. And then I 
just help lots of businesses, I guess, around the UK and um, Europe. Um, mainly, mainly, most of those are just ad hoc pieces of work that I do. Uh, Not but, busy then. Um, I have to be honest. David, <laughs> David caught me on the way in, going, "Hey, can you've got too many bags." I go, well, well, I'm going to sneak to the gym on the way out. So you can control your lifestyle a bit more, and I think that's the main difference that you have. You, you don't, you don't have the executive responsibility because I th- was thinking about when I was chatting to David in, in Helsinki. You don't have that ongoing management anymore to worry about you know you turn up you profess greatness hopefully um and some wise words but then someone else has to make it happen for you so it's a it's a it's still a challenging job really great for the thinking in the brain but you haven't then got to execute things you know you'd ask david david go right i understand what i now need to do and he would then make that stuff happen (laughs) and you just walk away and you so you don't carry any more the sort of day-to-day responsibility of running the business which i think is so it frees your mind up a bit more much harder on the brain much harder brain power because you're constantly trying to think through what's the right support framework you can put around these people but in terms of doing it's great fun it's a great place to be at the minute it's a different outlook and and so with that because obviously you you kind of almost in a I will say like a privileged position in that you're looking at kind of lots of different types of company and you, you have that joy of being able to see all these different experiences and, and industries and what people, you know, where people are learning and moving. Um, we wanted to ask you like if there's any particular insure tech that you're inspired by. That could be a technology, it could be a company, but like with the lens you have, which is um, such a rare one with all these different kind of viewpoints, is there anything in particular that, like, yeah, that's definitely worth keeping an eye on? So I had to research that this morning because I couldn't think of any that really jumped out. And I looked at people like Trove. I looked at Lemonade. My concern is, if I'm being really critical about it, is that nobody's really completely innovating that space. They're all either better ways to go to market or they're simpler ways to buy the product. Mm. Nobody seems to have changed insurance Mm. or what it is. Nobody sort of, to my mind, changed it into a... I don't know, a rental proposition, you know, the, the, the fact that you don't buy insurance anymore, you just rent a car and everything's packaged up in, in, inside it. I suppose Tesla were trying to do that. But I didn't have any. I was really quite disappointed in that I couldn't think of any that were really, really grabbing it. Lemonade are trying, but I worry that theirs is a very PR story. Don't know enough about it, but I just feel it's a very well PR storied and story and they're not necessarily really much different from anyone else. Then you look at people like Trove, you think, yeah, doing some good stuff. And you're looking at come some some others where I looked at where, yeah, you could buy car at cover, where you could buy car insurance by the hour. Still car insurance, exactly the same products, underwritten by insurance companies. So I just think there is a space to completely own a totally different product. Don't know what that looks like, but I just feel <laughs> with all of the startups there is around it, you just feel there has to be someone who can come in and completely revolutionize the, the whole way. And, yeah. you know, you cover your risk and forget the word insurance. You're just covering the risks of, things happening in your life that you need protection for it's it's the idea i think we talk about it quite a lot there's there's sort of two parts to it one is that nobody is actually doing the insurance bit of insurance any different like as you said it's kind of the distribution or making the underwriting faster more efficient smarter but it's still underwriting to the same you know uh, the same old patterns but the other is um the, the thing that, that nigel walsh who's, who's often my co-host on this show says is we're waiting for invisible insurance we're waiting for not to have to think about insurance for it to to know we're covered and protected to a level or a layer which is appropriate for us, but to not have to like do the whole go to cover and download the app. Great though that journey is, and, and I use it and it's very useful, but I just kind of want to be able to get in the car and the car to know, oh, okay, Sarah's driving today. So these are this is her history. You're insured for X, whatever. I totally agree. I, I find it quite astounding that in probably 2006, 
I was ever allowed to keep any of my Aviva papers, I could show you a piece of work we did around getting rid of the renewal process, whether it be car insurance, home insurance. Mm. So if you changed it to the model very similar to you doing, you lose that friction point at 12 months where someone's going to go, I'll have a look around into the marketplace to see where I can get a better price. 12 years later, renewal is still a key part of the process. And you just think, how come nobody's got rid of that? Yeah. You know, how yeah. come it hasn't been changed to a subscription model or a, a rental? I don't know. Just you just feel why? What what's happening in the the underwriting or the actuaries to stop them? Because I don't know if it's a can't believe it's a tech solution. You no. know, it must be an easy way to solve that. I think the the fundamental on that is its business model. Like you actually, you've got so many people who stand to benefit exactly as insurance is today than actually moving from a, a policy to a subscription, which I think uh, completely agree with, I think is the right way to go because essentially you remove, you, yes, you increase the amount of friction by having it monthly rather than having it annually, but you change the significance of it in terms of what people would be doing. I, I think it's it's interesting. It's we, and again, we see this insurance, we see this in probably many walks of life. Like I, I was bizarrely tangent here, sorry guys. Um, with my kids in uh, the science museum a couple of weeks ago, um, and the first car on the road just looked like a, a you know a horse and cart without the horses. So I, actually, I think the thing that they put in place there was actually something that was familiar enough to people that it didn't freak them out while they were kind of evolving things to to be something unique. Um, and I think there are a lot of like lemonade, like you say, haven't really touched the business model. They've just fractionized it in different places. And I, and I do think that moving to more like you say a subscription based thing feels to me like the natural progression to go. This is a product you choose forever, and not just for a year. The, the one, the one example that comes to the front of mind for that is actually um, in the states. Uh, a lot of people buy cars sort of on subscription now. You don't buy a car outright; you get it for X amount of months, and you pay it back monthly. And what most of the big car manufacturers in the states are doing now, because they underwrite their own loans, they have banks like Ford has a bank, um, is that they in that subscription you get breakdown cover insurance. Uh, concierge service for free car washes or I don't know what it is and Volvos has been so popular they've had to stop it wow. because that model has proved so popular people like yeah, you know I'm just buying my car and that's it and I pay one monthly payment and I get the car and I know I'm covered for breakdown and I know I'm insured and everything else hmm. um, so I think we're starting to see inroads but obviously it's much easier for Volvo to do it when Volvo owns the financial services company and the car yeah. um, it's kind of I think for the rest of the industry maybe it's that melding that we've yet to see but I wonder also whether the disruption will come from the automotive industry because they're struggling to make money on cars. So they have to make money somewhere else. And, you know, how do you create loyalty? You, you put everything in one place. You know, if you did that with a three-year renewal or a four-year, your car will be replaced or it will be replaced when we want to do it. You can see them absolutely transforming that space. So I can totally see the BMWs and the Mercedes getting into that space where you pay a monthly premium or a monthly amount. You wouldn't... With, Gosh, it's insurance on the brain. You pay a <laughs> monthly amount and all that's done. Yeah. And you never, it's, it's about mobility then. It's not about a car. It's and, about how to get from A to B. And yeah. then in 18 months, they say, do you want a new one or do you want to pay less every month? Yeah. Kind of like I do on my mobile phone, actually. Now I think about this. It's a business model in that. Um, so what I'm going to do is move us on to the news, a little bit of chat about some of the most exciting insurance stories this week. Um, so the first one um, is from Finextra and it's InsureTech Startup Sunday 
raises Series A funding of $10 million, sorry, led by Vertex Ventures. So Sunday is a multi-line insure tech with fully integrated sales and services platforms designed to reinvent the entire insurance value chain. Um, so one, this is one of the reasons that we picked this was kind of it, they're, they're selling themselves as changing um, insurance from, from end to end. Um, so they say they differentiate themselves based on risk prediction model driven by AI and machine learning for feature engineering and more accurate risk pricing in real time. Um, they're based out in East Asia. Um, so, you know, to go back to your point about Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, the COO said that Sunday is on a mission to serve customers very differently as an insure tech in this region. The insurance market is fragmented with huge gaps in current offerings coupled with many pain points throughout the entire customer journey. So what do we think of this one? Either the company or kind of what we're the changes we're seeing in the industry in that particular region? I should point out they're based in Thailand. First of all, I'd say terrible name. Yeah, company, company naming is a whole other. In fact, that's not a whole other podcast. That's a whole other like series of podcasts. Just, just trying to own the term Sunday and insurance combined is somewhat problematic. I would have thought just merely from a search engine optimization perspective. Um, like beyond that, like it reads like very heavily PR'd kind of distribution, doesn't it? In terms of uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence disruption, rethinking, you know, it's its hitting all of the right spots. I guess somebody's believed $10 million worth of uh, investment in this, which um, I guess in a, an Asian market, not a great deal to, to, to have a crack at doing something, but we'll be interested to see where they get. Yeah, my, my build is, it's the same. It's about how can you price quicker? Mm. How do you use information to give you a price in real time? Well, these days, to be fair, you know, I could give you a couple of examples where people are changing prices every minute in the UK based on real-time information that's coming in. So can't really see where risk prediction models will fundamentally drive anything other than just, you know, it's a great feature to PR and totally get, you know, if they can really change their the, the customer proposition. The moment of truth usually in insurance isn't tricky. It's the minute you buy and the minute you want to claim, you know, and, and on the basis that you still have to maintain something when you claim when you when you're managing a claim to is this a proper claim is it actually um, relevant is it what you're covered for you're going to struggle so it's it's great to see people trying new things out but i'm i'm not convinced you know whether <laughs> using david's with that brand it will be here in a year's <laughs> time not convinced I like, I do, what I do like about it is that when we um, hear about insurtechs, quite, we hear a lot of them come out of the States. We've, we've got a fairly thriving market here in the mm. UK, but an awful lot of what we do here comes out of Asia, whether that's Southeast Asia, whether that's China. And um, I wonder if it's actually a, a more thriving market, not only, and obviously they have more money going into that market because of where they are, but I do wonder if that, um, to your point earlier, Sean, that, you know, in India, they leapfrog landlines. I wonder if that actually is where we should be looking for maybe this isn't it but the leapfrog of insurance and maybe that's where we should be focusing our attention certainly if you look at singapore and i i you know i i loved my three years in singapore the government in singapore are so so keen on investing in this space to make them a fintech insurtech hub for the the asian region that i totally would get what you're saying and that they will try their utmost to make sure these things are invested in they will invest they will get all of the consultancies you name it to build things in um, Singapore to allow them to leapfrog. And because it is also, I would suggest, a market that is ready for change. You know, they still, I don't know what the stats are, I'm a bit out of date, but I am pretty sure a good 50% of businesses still probably bought through the man knocking on the door that it's ripe for change. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we've seen a lot and we're going to see a lot more of is this um, distribution by things like, like not even smartphone, but by mobile phone in that part of the world. Because there will be parts of the world that, that even the man knocking on the door doesn't get to. Bizarrely, the major distribution is that it's no longer a man knocking on the door. So I made this point on... It's on, a woman? Yes. It's so, and actually, it was uh, Neil Cross, ex-CIO uh, at DBS, who corrected me on that point, was actually there's a... Like now it is trended. It's a 25-year-old... Uh, female who knocks on the door, but they're still knocking on the door. Uh, so they, they've progressed a little way. Um, <laughs> Gender not, diversity is progressing. Yeah, it, it's not quite the change in distribution model that we were looking for, but at least they're progressing, aren't they? Interesting. All right. Well, the next story, um, we've taken it from, from Global Newswire, but uh, it's the, the, the story is based off the uh, Willis Taz Watson quarterly InsureTech report. So this headline is, um, InsureTech investment by reinsurers rises as new tools are developed to manage cyber risk. So the headline stats are that 63 InsureTech deals with a total value of $1.59 billion were announced worldwide in Q4 2018, up 24% and 155% respectively, over Q4 2017. Um, the total, including all stage investments in property, casualty and life and health ventures, is the second highest ever behind the exceptional second quarter of 2015. I wonder what happened then. Um, <laughs> after rising for several years, the number of strategic insurtech investments by reinsurers declined from its peak, but funding um, volumes increased significantly. Um, so this is an interesting, I always find it interesting when they sort of pull all these numbers together. They're, they're always big numbers, but it's kind of pulling it apart a little bit and seeing, you know, who's actually getting it, what size of the pot is each person getting. I mean, overall to me, this is this is a positive story, I guess. Um, but I wonder if anybody else has spotted anything in the trends there that's, that's worth, uh, something else that's worth picking up on. I don't know if it's a trend, but certainly if you think through the Munich Rees, the Swiss Rees, they have to be doing this. You know, otherwise, they will just get left behind because people will find a way of cutting them out of the um, insurance chain. The numbers to me, if you, uh, they're global numbers, probably aren't huge. If you take them market by market, what they need to be investing in to stay ahead in the marketplace are probably quite small. You know, if it's 11 in Q4 of $200 million, Really, that's not a huge amount. You know, that's, that's if my math isn't absolutely useless, that's 10 or about 20 million. So that's, that's not a huge amount of investment. You know, it's probably picking some really good um, innovative solutions that they think probably will add value to them, not necessarily which, which will disrupt the market. The, um, the other interesting thing, I think, was um, the, from my perspective, was the pulling out the cyber risk. So that particular report focuses on InsureTech uh, tools and features and products that help manage cyber risk. I mean, that is got to be a focus of attention for the next well actually i suspect it has got to have been the focus of attention for yesterday but now we've woken up to it it feels like that should be a lot of people's priority right now yeah definitely i, I think it's it's uh, probably not just for the insurance market but actually much broader than that in terms of the dependence increasingly on digital systems and, and the internet for a distribution play so you know I, I think it's interesting in this context but probably much more interesting is the the you know the insurance specific stuff that should be should really be coming from it you know but 1.6 billion is it's definitely a sign of something happening isn't it i think it's almost to your point uh, i'm I'm always interested when people start doing funding rounds, but I'm more interested when people start getting follow-on rounds for actually proving the thing that they wanted to do is actually a thing. Um, so it would be interesting probably for us to go and figure out of those 63 deals, what happened when. Uh, 
you know, and that that will be the proof in this uh, the investment pudding, as it were. No, absolutely. I mean, we looked at some um, a couple of weeks ago. We looked at some other investment stats, which were you know um, from a, from a different organization. But um, the Americans were coming out on top with the biggest rounds, um, and because it was America, it was health insurers. And the point we were making there is that that's so skewed. So you can't just look at like the hundred million rounds that went to uh, the health insurers in the states. Actually, what you want to do is take those out and look at everybody else because that's such an exceptional market that it, it can kind of throw you off completely when it comes to both volume and you know, areas of the industry that are of interest. I also, the other thing I'm, I always look at when you think is that there's 63 deals. It's the hundreds of other, other organizations that just can't raise cash. Mm. You know, I always wonder if there, there are things there that have gone away because they didn't get the, going back to your point, they didn't get the product right or they didn't get the distribution model right. And actually just a better, slicker, go-to-market strategy would have got them to raise money. And the people who raise money, without being controversial, are the people who've put a good deck together or have good relationships. And that always worries me that we're not getting the real true breakthrough innovation just because we can't get sell their story properly. Mm. It's interesting. James York, he's a friend of the show, um, said a couple of weeks ago, and he always says this. He says he actually wants doesn't want to know about this. He wants to know about the failures. He wants to know what who didn't make it and who didn't get the money or who didn't get the grant or who didn't get into the lab because that's actually more interesting when you're looking at a nascent market. Yeah. Um, so the next story comes from Insurance Age, but it's actually, again, friends of ours, Tappily, um, who are somewhere in this building, actually. Um, they have unveiled a broker platform for on-demand products. So uh, they've launched a software as a service platform for brokers. Um, Tappily in, provides insurance for gig economy workers in Europe, um, providing policies for the self-employed, freelancers, contractors, and small businesses, basically that huge underserved market. Um, this new offering gives brokers access to a range of on-demand insurance products that are otherwise difficult to obtain. So this is interesting to me because this is a, a, not a pivot but an expansion and we've to talk to that idea about getting enough customers to be scalable we've seen quite a few people go down this white label model so take the model they've proven works and sell it to brokers i don't think there's anything wrong with that actually i think it's quite a smart move not at all no it's it's a lot easier to disrupt b2b than it is b2c right and to all of the points that we were making earlier on if you can actually start using somebody else's distribution and in this model brokers are you know definitely sort of still holding a, a good sort of stranglehold on some of that distribution for certain types of products then you know creating a platform that's so good you can use it for distribution to other people it's it's uh, revenue forever as well in terms of the way in which you would structure your business so rather than just relying on your efforts if you can power up the whole industry then why not totally you have three you know the simple world of marketing is you have three routes to market direct to consumers through an intermediary or an affiliation this is just one of those you know why not as david says why not use it it's simple it's an easy way of doing it. It's one of the ones we've seen. We've seen. Um, we, I first started seeing it in kind of what we would what was historically called the robo advisory space. But exactly the same idea. Like you do need that volume to become sustainable. You because it's not a kind of ongoing uh, revenue. It's kind of once a year or whatever. Um, and we started to see a lot of other of the, the fintech in the broader broadest sense industries follow it. Um, I quite like the idea of them coming in as, as, a, as a software supplier as well, because I think that talking about insurance, if we actually want to see business models change, then taking away that excuse, oh, our systems are too old, um, 
is a real kick up the bum for some of the big guys as well. Well, well it moves, um, you know, we've been saying about this about fintech for a couple of years, but actually fintech is much more disruptive to the big incumbent suppliers than it is actually the big incumbent banks. And this is kind of what we're going to start seeing here is there are, you know, a, a handful of uh, insurance platforms who have basically had the stranglehold on, well, you're going to have to move from this service and it's going to cost you 20 million pounds to upgrade to this license from this thing to, you know, and actually this starts to, anything that's software as a service starts to, disrupt their business models, which I think is, it's smart. So it's what I'd be doing if I was going into InsureTech for sure. <laughs> well done, Gentana. Um So the final story is one that I wanted to cover last week. We didn't get to in time and it's um, from This Is Money. But the headline is Barking Mad, Big German Dogs Are More Expensive to Insure Than Big German Cars, AA Data Finds. So AA Insurance compared annual pet cover to motor premiums and found that some dog breeds are more expensive to insure than a family car. So a Great Dane, for example, is twice as pricey to cover than a £58,000 BMW X5. Um, the study compared 12 dog breeds to 12 different cars to show the golf and costs. Um, it, <laughs> the, the puns that came out of this, they were accidental puns, they were deliberate puns. Um, to me, uh, just to put it out there, I kind of would have guessed this. Uh, each Great Dane is very different. Each BMW X5 you would hope is not very different. And also, I would love my Great Dane more than my BMW, but maybe that's just me. No, I think you're right. And I, I think, you know, to keep carry that story on, a Great Dane would cost a lot more to repair these days than a BMW. And that's what happens. These big dogs, big animals, you know, if you take them to a vet's and my, my lovely daughter is a veterinary nurse who so she tells me how much this stuff is. It's phenomenal. If you, you know, if they break a leg or have something wrong with them, you are talking thousands of pounds of repair bills. Whereas a car, for quite frequently these days, the repairs are actually quite cheap. Mm. The biggest part of um, cost of a car insurance isn't actually the repair, it's all the other stuff. So totally see why that you would be paying a lot more for, for your animal. Is there a thing here as well, everybody has to insure their car, not everybody has to insure their dog. Therefore, if everybody did insure their dog, probably premiums would be a lot lower down, wouldn't they, in terms of spreading of the risk across a much broader pool. So um, I don't think you're going to get away with that size of dog in your flat, though, Sarah. I'm just saying, like, uh, it's probably going to definitely be annoying your neighbours on that one. Well, well the, the cheapest the cheapest dog breed on, on this list is a smooth fox terrier, which is um, apparently slightly more expensive than a Ford Fiesta, but, like, cheaper than a Kia Sportage. So negotiations will probably ensue when I go home tonight about <laughs> which car versus which dog. This is like the weirdest version of Top Gear's Cool Wall I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I was just thinking my wife is desperate to have a Newfoundland, so I wondered if I could trade trade a Newfoundland for an X5. I wondered what whether, what would be the cheapest on the insurance. We, we could dig into it for you and see if... <laughs> Some, something for her, something for you. Exactly. Yeah, that sounds like a good trade. And Newfoundland, they're the, the giant, really fluffy ones. Absolutely yes. huge, yes. What do you have enough spare? Do you have to have a spare bedroom for that one? I think we, in a spare garage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brilliant. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us today, Sean. It's been lovely to learn about what you've been up to, what you're up to next. Um, where can people find out more about you? Do you have a Twitter handle? Do you have an email address? You'd yeah, like I have share? all of those things. I have a LinkedIn profile um, under just Sean Meadows. I have a Twitter handle which is at Sean Meadows One. Uh, don't really use much other social media, um, I'm afraid. So, And my email address is uh, sean.meadows at sipartnersglobal.com. Brilliant. How about you, David? Where can people find uh, more about you? You can find me on at David Breer on Twitter. Perfect. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. So that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. <laughs>